you're listening to the From Grassroots to the Glory podcast, hosted by Didier Lemieux, providing an in-depth look into the behind the scenes of the Victorian Athletic League. Today's episode has a bit of everything. Athletics, sporting success, and the cusp of an Olympic dream. However, with all stories, it has a setback. And in the case of sport, that setback is always injury. But today's guest didn't let injury dampen their future. For those interested in just the sporting side of things, feel free to click off after the first half of the episode. But for those of you wanting to learn and insight into personal development, how to be one's best, and what it takes to run a successful business, then I highly encourage you to listen to the end because you will receive so much value from this very, very short time period. Today's guest, Steve Fossman, is a former pro runner, Olympic hopeful turned entrepreneur, and he shares his story with us today. So please welcome to the pod, Steve Brossman. Well, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for your time this morning. How are you? Mate, um, I'm excited to turn back the clock and dredge out some of the history that we're going to be covering today. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to go down memory lane. Yeah, it's going to be a fantastic episode. Uh, and for all the listeners and all the viewers uh, who won't be aware of who you are, you were an Olympic hopeful back in the day, competed in the VAL across Stall, Bay, Sheffield, Burnie, all the big name gifts. Um, and then unfortunately, as it does in so many sporting careers, injury struck. So before we get into the depths of all of that, what made you start running in the first place? It's it's an interesting story because uh, I was actually born with pretty damn bent legs. Uh, I had uh, I was bordering on deformity, and my nickname growing up from my wonderful family was Bumblefoot. It was, you know, super bent legs, pigeon toe, and I actually did keep tripping over my own feet. <laughs> but um, I was pretty good at sport. Loved the the rugby league and just joined the local athletic club. But I was always the third or the fourth member picked in the team. Never represented primary school or high school. And I said to my dad in my last year, and I said, you know what? I want to go out a winner. I want to win the high school sport and go out. And he said, okay, cool. Let's get a coach. And uh, so one of our family friends had just moved into town. He was a professional athlete and coach. So I started training with him. And Dad and I used to train really hard. We used to run around the block, sometimes run around the block twice. And we were really good at running around the block. (laughs) Somehow that doesn't help you win sprints. (laughs) No, probably not. (laughs) So once I switched to this coach, it was just like, bang. Um, I did win the, the high school sports. The, the one, the two, the four, went to uh, zone regionals and wow, you know, I won them too. And I just kept improving, got to state. No fairy tale there. I made the finals, but that was it. And I, I thought that was it. And then um, my coach said, you know, you're having fun. Yeah. Look at your times. Look how much you've improved. Why don't you have, you know, give pro running a crack? 
Well, I did my first race. It was the Dubbo Gift, and it was just so much fun, all the handicaps and all the things that were going on. I thought, I might give this a crack. This is not bad to do over the summer. So that's how I got involved with it. And, um, you know, I said to the the organiser of the Dubbo Gift, I said, I'm having so much fun. I'm going to come back and win it next year. And he said, yeah, good on you. <laughs> and did like you? He did. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and and it was just uh, it was just so much fun. So I just kept doing it. And the progression, and I wrote about it in my book, Exceed, How to Exceed Your Own Personal and Professional Expectations. And I kept a, a, a format of six principles that I kept doing and using over and over again. It wasn't until I wrote the book I realized that that's what I did when I was a kid. To, to do all of this. And what happened is, you know, I started running my last year of high school and in less than two years, I was the youngest national professional track champion in, in the ranks. And um, it just kept going from there, just training hard and, uh, and doing well and, ha- and more importantly, having fun. That's such a key aspect in anything, right? Yeah. Have fun, enjoy your time, and uh, do the best you can, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and, and I got to see a lot of the country. Ran in virtually every major gift final. Um, won a few along the way, and uh, yeah, it was just a, a, a great seven years. So those six principles. What are those six? Yeah, without going into detail, the differentiators are one that's called momentum goals. And set a goal that's just out of your reach that you know you can achieve and then set about a plan, a team, do more than is expected, get in front of the curve and then you hit that goal with momentum and that creates a slingshot onto the next one. So if I'd have, as a school kid, set a goal of I'm going to become national champion, it's out of reach. I'd have missed the first hurdle and wouldn't have gone for it. Whereas when you've got the momentum goals and you create that slingshot effect, you go goal after goal after goal, and that's exactly what happened. And I've carried that on and I teach that with uh, with most of the people I work with just by reversing the goal setting, getting the team around you. But the key thing is what can I do today that is a little more than the plan that's going to get me to the next bit? It's interesting you say that. I spoke with one of our athletes in the VAL, Mia Spencer, uh, last week, and we were talking about goal setting and the effect of goal setting on the mind. And we were saying how important it is that you don't want to set a goal too big because you'll stress yourself out, get upset that you're not going anywhere near achieving that. But on the same side of things, you don't want to set one that's too easy because then you're just conditioning yourself to not push yourself to your limits. And you're saying that in a very similar sense there from the sounds of it. I'll follow that up because this is important for the listeners. That when I was writing the book, I did a lot of research on the winning effect or the winner's effect. And Professor Ian H. Robertson that did a lot of studies on this. You know, animals, fish, humans, as we were going through becoming who we are now, whenever we had a win, and generally it was we got to eat. <laughs> you know, we, we found something, we killed it, we ate it or, or whatever that was. There's a surge of dopamine and testosterone that goes on. Now, the dopamine is the achievement, the feel-good hormone, 
and the testosterone gives you that extra surge of confidence. And when you have those wins and they're sequenced regularly, there's a, a, a physical and permanent change psychological, psychologically and physiologically. Now, I've seen and I've done it myself. When you're just knocking on the door, you're just about there, you're coming in the seconds and the thirds, and all of a sudden you have that win. And all of a sudden, then there's the next win and the next win and the next win. That's why it's physical and psychological changes that do happen. And when you set a goal that is too big, you're not getting the wins. When you're setting the right level goal and you achieve that goal and celebrate that goal, then that gives you the slingshot onto the next one and onto the next one. So goal setting is crucial if you do it the right way. Yeah, agreed. It's yeah, it's so important. You need that guideline, and you need those little steps along the way to just kickstart your kick going. As you said, slingshot to the next one, slingshot to the next one. Yeah, and that's where you see the real progress come through. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So going to your running days, Stall Gift, Bernie Gift, Dubbo Gift, Bay Sheffield, all the big name ones. What major achievements did you achieve in your time in pro running? Um, I won a few of the the New South Wales gifts, um, two dubbos, uh, the Maxwell gift, made the finals of of the big ones. Um, didn't quite make the gift at stall, but the made three finals there. The Bay Chef a couple of times, Bernie a couple of times. The thing that happened with me, there was a choice when I was young, and my coach said to me, he said, "Do you want to go to the national titles? Because I I was selected to go, or and you know what professional running is all about with the handicaps, because if I went to the nationals, showed what I could do, then I blew my handicap. You know, that's the way I was you know, set and I could. And so I made a choice and say, you know what, I'm just going to go. And yeah, at 18, 19, I was running as a backmarker with all of the, uh, the veteran athletes. So that was that. And, yeah, I could have hidden and done the the typical, you know, get your mark, hide and come out and win one of the big gifts, but uh, it, it just didn't happen. We were running the New South Wales gifts and I was making the finals of the others. Uh, we had a lot of, uh, we had the races here at the halftime at the uh, the rugby league. Um, I ran, won three of those. Um, that, that, that was one of the best feelings ever. Absolutely. The last, I think it was one of the last big races I won. It was at the grand final at the Sydney Cricket Ground, 52,000 screaming football fans. And the good thing was we were running in uh, team colours and they didn't have a clue who we were. But to win a race, i got goosebumps again now, to win a race by that much in front of 52,000 people was to me, as good as winning a gold at the Olympics. It's a feeling that I'll never forget. And it was a highlight of my career and I was never meant to win it. Um, everybody had written me off. I was off the back mark. We had the world record holder two metres behind me. The favourite was 23 metres in front. But I'd been doing my principles, doing the extra, hiding from my own teammates doing extra training sessions and had a separate team on the side. And I knew I had the belief that I could do it. And there was only two other people <laughs> that actually believed that I could. 
and uh, the plan came off. So that that pretty well was the highlight uh, of uh, of one of the career of the career. Yeah, fifty two thousand people screaming, <laughs> going off their heads. I can only yeah, imagine absolutely. what would have absolutely. been going through your head on that day. Yeah, yeah. So you go to the national championships. You kind of push away from pro running in a sense because now you're going down the path where you can challenge for Olympic spots in in coming years. Well, I'll give you the story on that, did you? Because it's a different one. Is I kept going with the pros. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, and and, and I see you're going to ask me what made me think that I could actually make the Olympics, and it was actually losing a race. Um, Bay Chef, uh, there was one guy that was favourite. I was second favourite. He was in front. We flew in the in the final. And uh, we ran the fastest time in 35 years, and I got beaten by 0.05 of a second. Like that's that much. Hot margins, <laughs> you know. And I'm on the I'm on the ground, sitting down. I was pretty dejected. I really thought I could win it. And my coach came over with a big smile on his face. I thought, "What do you want?" <laughs> and he held up he held up seven fingers. And I said, no, I come second, not seventh. And he said, no, seven. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you just ran seven in. And that's uh, a measurement of how many yards inside even time you ran. That was the equivalent of 10.3 for 100 metres on grass. Wow. And he said, you've made it. Hmm. Now we can challenge to go to the Olympics and go those because at that stage there was the fight between the pros and the amateurs and they just brought in that you could sit out 12 months, not race and get your amateur status back. Even though at that time, the amateurs were making more money than us under the table. You know, some of the guys that were running around Europe, they'd come home with $40,000. Well, we never won that in a whole virtual lifetime of pro athletics, not, well, they do now. So it was like, well, the focus then was what are we going to do to set a plan to qualify, to get the status back, then compete, qualify to get to the game. So we kept running until it was time to take the year off and leave us enough time to qualify. And three. That's buddy quick, eh? <laughs> it wasn't bad. Yeah. And, and that's on grass as well, not on track. It's on grass. Yeah. And it's what, 20, 30 years ago? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It was the yeah. 81 Bay Sheffield gift. Yeah. That, that's that's phenomenally fast. You, know, you look at it nowadays. I don't know what the exact figure is to, to qualify for an Australian team, but you'd have to imagine it would be around 10, if not under 10, or just about in that vicinity, right? So Yeah, 10, I think you're looking around about 10-1. So I was a couple of metres behind um, those guys that are running now, and I'm looking at some of those. And on the times, and I organised and sent videos to train with an American coach over there with you know, some of the highest levels and all of those sorts of things. And the, the fact of the matter was, at best, I was probably going to get to the semifinals. I wasn't black and I wasn't on drugs. <laughs> unfortunately yeah and that was it that was it and it was like well yeah but um i would have liked to have got there but um 
yeah, with what has happened, uh, I've gone down a different path. So let's go into a little bit about what has happened because it was a pretty serious injury that you that you, that had happened to you. Yeah, and it's a good lesson. And so it was in the twelve months off. I couldn't I couldn't compete. I couldn't race against anybody. It was just train, 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 and train. And uh, you know, I grew up in the Hunter Valley, grass tracks, middle of a drought. I might as well be running on concrete. And every time another magazine came out and something else came out, you know, the Bulgarians were doing this and the Russians were doing this and, you know, depth jump, plyometrics, all of those sorts of things. I just kept adding them without taking anything away. There was no the rest, the recovery. It was just, hey, I've got to, I've got to keep throwing this in. And over the period of time, what I was doing was I was pretty well ruining my back. I was just crushing the discs in my back. One day, I still see it. One day, did my normal warm-ups, got on the track, pushed out off my warm-up start. That's okay. Ready to go the hard one. Pushed out, flat on my face, severe pain. Somebody might as well have chopped my back with an axe and couldn't get up. Uh, I really crushed three discs in my back to the point that, yeah, there was some severe damage there. And this is a 23-year-old. And uh, it took a lot, you know, psychologically, you know, one minute, 10 foot tall, bulletproof, goal, going to the Olympics in two years' time. Next day, you can't get out of bed. It was like, that was pretty severe. So it was, uh, what do we do and how do we get back on the track? And uh, that was the focus from then. How long were you out for with the injury? Until you could get back on your feet and start doing some normality. Well, yeah, I got I got up and walking, and you know, pretty well the next few days. I could I could move as long as I was either vertical or sitting, I was fine. But any type of movement, you know, the knees would buckle and and all sorts of things like that. And it was just the list of treatments. I went from one to another to another to another, and the uh, the end result that uh, the only thing that got me mobile again was actually gym work, strengthening everything around it to take the pressure off the actual spine itself. And, uh, yeah, what was that, 80, early 83? So the inter- the thing is I haven't had a day without pain since. But, mm. uh, yeah, I'm living. I'm, geez, I'm cycling you know, 50 to 100k a week i'm swimming i'm, I'm active um i'm not crying poor as far as you know, my body goes but uh, you just learn to live with it adapt and move on and at the time you, you just mentioned gym work was one of those core things that was able to help you get through the injury to strengthen everything around it so that it naturally became stronger were you doing gym work consistently as part of your training program or were you kind of just pushing that off to the side and just focusing on the sprint training and the plyometrics and everything else that you were reading in magazines and what forth? Did you kind of neglect the gym work back then? That's why my body fell apart. Um, I ran too fast on my body. I had a coach that was generally old school at the time and got me to the point of where I was. 
but didn't really encourage gym work and couldn't supervise it didn't and i didn't know what i was doing and and so the preventative and the recovery was not there which is why pretty well that happened i just um took it on myself to just throw everything at the body and the body didn't handle it so um and, and that was one of the main benefactors of my psychological recovery is you know instead of lying in the bed saying oh woe is me blaming anybody else the first thing i did well i'll take responsibility and then say now what um who am i now i'm not the sports jock you know i'm not the celebrity runner who's like who am i and what am i going to do and that's that i think is a big thing for many people out there that when things go wrong is like well okay what's happened take responsibility of whatever part you have in it and then move on yeah and during that time of of recovery you started to fall in love with the fitness industry and that's where you did end up moving into post your, your career so what was kind of the, the draw card for that obviously fitness is very closely related to running of course but what, what was that initial spark in your head that you were like oh this is kind of a cool industry to go down yeah I, I always had an entrepreneurial streak in me um, even at high school I had a couple little mini businesses on the side going um, I did have a job while I was professional running and it was a great job that allowed me to travel and do everything and now I didn't need that job because um, I could move on and I looked at what was going on in the fitness industry and it was the time of the you know the glam the body beautiful all of those sorts of things and I looked at what was out there and I thought well at that point in time three to five percent of the population was going to the gyms 85 percent of the population needed to go to the gym who's looking after them and so I did the numbers worked it all through had a business partner that was there for a little while but he dropped off and then we opened it up as a family um you talk about gutsy my mum and dad put their house on the line for my dream for our family business to, to set up a gym and um we were doing it differently. It was like we had the decondition, we had the overweight, we had the kids, the seniors, all of those different programs that nobody else was doing. And we became super successful. Um, you know, I franchised the gym, the kids club program into five countries, the weight loss program into two. And it was all, I, I could just see what the others weren't doing. And this big group of the population that was being neglected like we did not have a mirror in the gym we had people not come back to our aerobics classes because they could actually walk the next day <laughs> you know it's like oh i'm not no no and once it took hold it just uh it just exploded and we had a very successful health club for for 10 years yeah it's an interesting time that period for, for fitness, as you say, you know, um, and it, without that entrepreneurial kind of um, mindset in your younger years, perhaps you wouldn't have been able to exploit that little, little space in the market. 
Yeah, and and that's the thing. And all of it's interesting that I work with businesses now and help them with their positioning, their packaging, their marketing. But everything that I did when we opened up the club in 83, 84, all of those times and the hours, it's still the foundation of what works today. Sure, so many things have changed. <clears throat> but when we talk about positioning, um, you know, I got to travel and present at international fitness conferences and things like this. And I was a, you know, just a little boy from the Hunter Valley that had a small health club, but I grew all of these different other programs and got to be featured on stages. Yeah, you know, I've spoken to over 40,000 fitness industry people in 15 countries. But then I looked at, well, okay, what do I got to do for positioning marketing, personal marketing to get me out there, authority marketing? And I put all that out there. And, you know, I became the first non-American to win International Fitness Instructor of the Year, beating two goddesses of TV fitness because of the way that I learned to position and communicate in a different way to just the typical. And again, another great business marketing lesson on how do you do that? And, you know, for the most of the people in the crowd, I was like, Steve, who? <laughs> Who's he? <laughs> this guy, this guy from the, the middle of Arna Valley in where? Australia? And, I've never heard of that place before. <laughs> yeah. And that was that was the thing. And that's the big thing for people that I work with clients right now is like, well, you don't have to, the best way to really stand out is to have and own your own unique programs. And that's what I was doing at the time that took me all over the world. Yeah, it's very interesting that. But yeah, look at that. It just goes to show little little boy in the Hunter Valley, you put in the hard yards, you, you can get where you want to get to. It's just, it's important to think like that. Yeah, look, and I tell my people that I'm not really going to accept too many excuses. I was born with bent legs and became Australia's youngest national professional track champion. I had a broken back and became Austra the first non-American to win international fitness instructor of the year. Don't come to me with excuses <laughs> and expect me to listen to them. It's like you can pretty well overcome anything yet you set your goals believe in yourself get the team around you and then go and achieve it and there's some great people out there that have multiple obstacles greater than i've done that have achieved fantastic things so it's a matter of yeah set your mind to it believe in yourself and then just get off your butt and go and do it so what three major lessons have you learned over your journey from pro running into business world, part of all of it, the entire experience throughout your life, what three major lessons have you learned? Good question. <clears throat> if you had have said what three pages of lessons <laughs> have I learned, <laughs> I'd have been more comfortable about <laughs> rattling off a lot of the good lessons. But first and foremost is belief in yourself. And... The interesting thing is a lot of people set New Year's resolutions and all of those sorts of things. And I don't believe in those sorts of things. You don't wait for that. But I do, at the beginning of every year, set some goals and aspirations. But the next thing, and this is a lesson in itself, the next thing is I set 
who do I have to become? Believe that what you have is already there or what you have, you know how to go and get what you need. At our fingertips, mouse, keyboard, whatever we want to talk about, virtually everything we need is at the click of a mouse and we can go and find who we need, what we need to know to go and do it. So believe in yourself, but then who do you have to become? And every year that I work on me first and accept that I have to change to step up to whatever level that I need to step up to, then then that's the next thing there. And if I'll call it the third major lesson is pick your team. How do you best work with other people to be able to achieve the goals that you want? And over the last several years, I've been building some fairly significant businesses and opportunities by saying, how can my skills, knowledge, and what I do enhance what other people do for their clients. And when I've switched to that is how do I make you look the hero in front of your people? How do what I do help your people get greater results from what you work with them? And that formula there has been super, super successful. And most people go into a partnership, relationships, whatever, looking for people to refer people to them. It's like, what can I get out of this? Who can you refer to me so I can build my business instead of doing the other one first? And it it, it works exceptionally well. And it's the way that I'm going to continue growing. So they're, they're pretty well the three lessons that I would say that um, are working exceptionally well today. Three very important messages there. You know, belief is obviously the first and foremost thing. If you've got no belief, you're not going to go anywhere. Luke, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be realistic. You know, if you've got no belief, you're just going to be laying on the ground somewhere. So, you know, you got to have that to push forward through anything. I loved that second one about, you know, who do you have to become to achieve something? Not what do you have to do? Who do you have to become? Because as you said, We've all got the qualities in us, but it's how do we shift ourselves to be able to use those in the in the best way to to achieve what we want to achieve. So I think that's a really important lesson there. And then yeah, third one, pick your team. You know, how many times have we heard multiple people across the world say, you know, it's about you know who you've got around you, who you can help out in your vicinity, as opposed to looking after yourself first and foremost. So three, uh, yeah, very important lessons there, Steve. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, so so going to finish it off. We've we've started a little thing following on from uh, the diary of a CEO, I suppose, um, with the secret question type scenario. So, your question today comes from Mia Spencer, who we touched on earlier. So her question for you, not knowing that she was going to be asking this to you, <laughs> is what would you do with ten million dollars? I'm going to up the stakes of this, hundred million. What would you do with hundred million dollars? What would I do with $100 million? Firstly, look at the smallest viable amounts that I would need to provide adequately for myself and family to go forward. 
And that might mean, what do I need? What do I need to invest, et cetera? Then I would look at what is it that I could do of value to my key charity organizations to make a, a, a big difference and a sustainable difference. Hmm. So it's not just, hey, let's just go and blow 90 million doing this and giving it away. Now, what, what could I do with, let's just say 90, that I could create a, a sustainable difference for those that I want to support? That would be the, the the two key areas. A very wise answer, I think. I think that's um, a good perspective because uh, the reason she asked that question is because she thinks it's one that lets you know a lot about a person. You know, you can tell what their kind of personality is like. And I think you've shown there that, uh, and from all your answers for other questions throughout this episode so far, we can tell that you know, it's not about you; it's about who you can help and how you can help other people succeed. And I think that last bit there, if you were to give 90 million to charity, it has to be done in a way that it can be sustainable, not just here's, here's the money, take it, do what you want with it. It needs to be used in a way that is going to be effective and, and provide for whoever it is, people, animals, facilities, whatever it is, you know, it has to be done in a way that's going to be effective. So I think that's a great answer. Yeah. And, and ideally it would be set up in a way that it actually multiplies and sustains the uh, the work that it needs to be done. Yeah, agreed. So, Steve, what would your question be for our next guest? Well, I'm going to give you an insight, and then the question. Sure. At the every year, um, when I sit down and work out, you know, what I'm going to be doing for the year, uh, who do I have to become? I also pick three words to live that year by. And my three for this year is belief, grow and leverage. Believe that I could achieve what I'm going to. Grow as a person to the next level. Um, and leverage the work with other people. So my question for the next person is, what three words are you either living by now or want to live by for the next 12 months? What three, what three words are you living by currently or want to live by in the next 12 months? Yeah, they identify because um, I put it out to a lot of my people and they, they end up doing it as well. They join me at the beginning every year to set their own three words. Yeah, they could be aspirational words, those sorts of things that, yeah, this is what you know, my three words that I want to live by this year. And uh, it, on another side, there's four Bs that is primarily ingrained in me to live by is brain, body, brand, business in that order. Brain is mindset. Body is look after it because if it falls apart, you don't go that well. <laughs> brand, personal brand. You are your personal brand these days. And then business. But look after business. Um, a lot of people get up each day and say, oh, I'm going to focus on my business and forget the other three Bs. Um, but if you go top to bottom, brain, body, brain, business, then it's a great way to uh, to live. And then I throw the other three words in as uh, they change every year. Yeah, and the four Bs is a good perspective. Uh, probably, I suppose 
an, an alternative perspective compared to what you see in, in mainstream um, in terms of work-life balance, right? People say, you know, what is work-life balance? And everyone's got their own definition for it, but that's a kind of good guideline to go down. Look after your brain, look after your body, and then go from there. You know, business can come last. You don't have to focus on that. And we're not talking business just in terms of, you know, uh, a company or anything. It can be business in terms of anything. It can, you know, yeah. your work, your your hobbies, whatever it is. But yeah, the interesting thing the about work-life balance is I hate the term because it's it, it looks as if it's the, the scales or the seesaw, whatever it is, that it needs to be equal, work-life mm. balance. Whereas I live by and help my people live by work-life integration. Yeah. And life should be a series of sprints. Work hard, play hard, rest hard. And if you're going to be working, I tell my people if they go on holidays and instead of being half with your family, half thinking about work, half doing all of this, nobody gets anything do a deal with your family and just say, listen, if I'm going to be here, I need to be working 60, 90 minutes. Can you just give me that? And you get the other 22 and a half hours, 100% me, if I can do 100% here. So sprint on this, sprint on that. And when you can do, yep, yeah, I'm going to work hard for X number of hours. I'm going to rest hard, play hard, whatever. Then you get to get momentum. If you like people talk about life being a marathon. Well, if you treat it as a marathon, you don't get any speed up. <laughs> you get no momentum going. Whereas if you do it as a series of sprints, you get some great momentum. You yeah. get some great rest and great momentum and you get so much more done. I'll, I'll jump off my soapbox there. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's good because you, you hear a lot of things from, from different people, particularly in the, in the business world. And they say, you know, you need the, the period of yes and period of no, that type of stuff, right? Yeah. And this kind of speaks to that, you know, you, you've got your period where this is it. I'm dedicating 100% of my time and my effort to work. And then I'm dedicating this part to my family, to my friends, whatever it may be. And then rest is obviously such a key component to everything as well. Because if you don't rest properly, you can't do any of those at 100%. And as you said, is it really a balance? It's, it's not a balance. It's integration yeah. into how you best utilize each part of work-life balance to to your best ability and i told my son <clears throat> growing up because he he saw me working from home as he was going through school and i told him i said mate i'm a 24 7 entrepreneur but i'm also a 24 7 dad and took the priorities and you know never missed any of his matches never missed any of his school things like that so it was a matter of, look, yeah, I'm here on call, but, you know, I might have to work at nighttime. I might have to get up early in the morning. I might have to do all of that so I can do all those sorts of things. So it's a matter of how do you integrate the life's jobs that you have and give each of them 100% priority when it's needed. Yeah. That's a great way to, to wrap things up. Something for all the listeners and the viewers to think about. How can they best integrate all the different strings of their life into a cohesion where it works out to the best of abilities and all, all those aspects? So, Steve, look, thank you so much for your time. An incredibly insightful episode, I think. Um, 
if if people are just here for the athletics talk of things, they'll hundred percent be able to relate to everything that you've achieved there. And everyone would have had their own injury um, period across their careers, so they can relate in that situation. And then for the ones um, that have continued listening on for the business side of things, I'm sure they're going to get a lot of out a lot out of it um, because you've broken so many different aspects and components down um, in a very articulate way. So thank you so much. Mate, uh, thank you. I've really enjoyed this chat and um, it was an awesome trip down memory lane and uh, I really do appreciate you for that as well. And uh, on the other side of the coin, congratulations and thank you for the, uh, the other work that you're doing. So well done. Appreciate it. We'll talk very soon. Cheers.